remember who Abram is. He is the recipient of the salvation promises, the covenant blessings of God. The Lord has promised that he will bring blessing to the nations through Abram. The very salvation blessings of God are going to flow through this man and through his family. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And today we're continuing a message we began last time, Battle and Blessing. And uh, Jonathan, as you're pointing out, I think there can be great comfort in knowing what the promises of God are for our life. I mean, certainly the fact that God had given these promises to Abram had to have given him some sort of comfort and peace as he faced the difficulties of his life. Well, the story of Abraham only makes sense as it continues if we remember that he had been given these wonderful promises and was resting on them, at least in his good moments. There are moments of real lapse in his life, and there are moments of failure, of course. But fundamentally, he was someone who took God at his word and trusted in his promises, and that was the way in which he was able to live. And for the Christian believer, that is the only way in which we can live. We have great and precious promises that have been made to us. We're heirs of the promises even to Abraham. And those promises have been made more sure and more clear for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the gospel, which we which we now know in its fullness. And the only way to live as a follower of the Lord Jesus, as a child of God, is to rest upon those promises day by day. And that's That's our privilege. Well, we're going to continue to look at that today. So if you can, I hope you will grab a Bible and join us in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 14 as we continue battle and blessing. Here is Jonathan. Abram and Lot had a rather awkward separation back in chapter 13. Perhaps you remember their respective entourages and business operations were growing. They were running out of room for all their flocks and herds in one place. They needed to go in different directions. And when it came to it, Abram took the gracious and the generous approach, and he said to Lot, look, Lot, you go choose the land, the territory you want. You, you choose what you would like, and I'm, I'm going to fit in around you. And Lot, as we remember the story, he didn't hesitate to take Abram up on the offer. And as Lot made his choice and took his land, we saw how he headed for the territory that seemed pleasant and prosperous. But he he didn't take much account of the Lord's provision. He moved to the eastern edge of the promised land. He moved probably beyond the border of the promised land, and he settled near a city that became known chiefly for its sin, the city of Sodom. Now, Abram could well have looked on Lot as as being selfish, silly, particularly unwise. Abram could have been insulted and disappointed. He could have been offended, and he could have been hurt. Maybe he was. We don't really know. But now Abram hears that Lot is in big trouble. And to help him, it's not only going to be costly and and inconvenient, it's going to be positively perilous. But this becomes a moment of distinction, a moment actually of triumph for Abram. Just notice it with me, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, He led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went as far as Dan. 
and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram heard the call. And rather than nurse his wounds about Lot's previous behavior, rather than sort of wag his finger and enjoy a I told you so moment, what does he do? Verse 14, it's so gracious. It's so kind. It's so full of sheer goodness. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit. Isn't that a wonderful response? Yes, he and Lot, they'd, they'd separated. Yes, Lot seemed to have little regard for the promises of God. Yes, Lot had grabbed the best territory for himself without much thought for his uncle. But Lot was still Abram's kinsman. And he wasn't about to let him perish at the hands of his enemies. Now, we could look on Abram here as we think about the application of this story to us. We, we, we could look on him, and we could move directly to drawing a moral lesson from him. Abram was gracious to the undeserving. You know, we should be the same. Certainly, that's a very good moral lesson for us to take home. But before we go there, before we rush to the moral lesson, I'd like us to slow down a little bit and see here a gospel pattern. Remember who Abram is. He is the recipient of the salvation promises, the covenant blessings of God. The Lord has promised that He will bring blessing to the nations through Abram. The very salvation promises of God, the very salvation blessings of God are going to flow through this man and through his family. And so what do we see here? We see God using Abram to bring deliverance to an unworthy man to an unwise and even wayward nephew who got himself into a dangerous place through worldly thinking and behavior. As God's chosen servant, as Abram looks on the situation, he responds in a way that is actually right after God's own heart. He doesn't look for an easy excuse just to ignore the situation as others might well. You know, <laughs> business is just, it's crazy just now. The staff, they're taking up so much of my time. I, I got to focus on things at home and just give attention to my family. The situation, it looks dangerous. The operation, it looks just far too costly. No, none of that. He enters right into the fray, and he resolves to bring a deliverance. When the Lord looked on his wayward children, when he looked on you and, and he looked on me, when he looked on us in our foolishness and our sin, when he looked on us perishing because of the choices that we had made, the choice to rebel against him and to go our own way, when he looked upon us in our distress, what did he do? Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God looked on us in our misery and our weakness and our sin, and He caused His loving kindness to appear in the world to appear in the person of His Son who came to be our rescuer. He didn't stand far off from us in our distress. He didn't hesitate to help. No, He came near. He showed His love. He entered the mess. He entered the battle. And ultimately, He died in our place that we might live. In Abram here, I think we see the heart of God. We see a gracious gospel pattern. I said it before when we read chapter 13, when we studied chapter 13, but as we read this story, I think you and I would love to identify ourselves with Abram in his virtue and his grace. That's where we'd love to kind of picture ourselves within this story. But actually, I think we should probably admit that Lot's shoes fit us a whole lot better here in Genesis 14. By wandering away from the safety of the Lord and His presence, we've put ourselves in danger. That's the human story. We've gone down to the wicked city, each one of us, as we've turned away from our Maker. But praise God, the righteous Savior, He has come for us. He has come to rescue. Praise God, the righteous Savior, He has put His life on the line for us. And praise God, there is now a deliverance available to each one of us. I hope that you know that deliverance today. I hope, in fact, that you have a clear understanding of your need for that deliverance. Apart from Christ, each one of us is in the grips of the forces of a powerful spiritual enemy who would not only capture us but would destroy us. Maybe you sense that. Maybe you know something of that, but you have not yet found release. Well, here is the good news of the gospel in a nutshell. God Himself, He has come down in the person of His Son. He has come near. He's fought the enemy at the cross of Calvary. He's defeated the enemy in His resurrection. And now He offers to you and to me an escape from the very forces of evil. He offers you a rescue. He offers you a future. Would you receive it? Receive it by faith, even today. For us who have received it, let me ask you, are you rejoicing today in the gracious rescue that God has achieved for us in Christ? Are you rejoicing that He came down to Sodom, as it were, to save us from the forces of sin and evil that would destroy us? Does that truth thrill you? and fill your heart with joy as it once did. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called Battle and Blessing. And we have to pause the teaching right here, but we're going to get back to this message from Genesis 14 in just a moment. Hey, if you ever miss part of a broadcast, because maybe you join us late or you have to leave early before done on the air, you can always come to the website and listen to what you missed or just go back and listen to each program in its entirety. Stop by EncounterTheTruth.org 
and you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Again, that's at EncounterTheTruth.org. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. The salvation plans of God, they move forward in the messiness of history. They move forward by a gracious rescue, and finally they move forward through a greater king. Every once in a while, something great is eclipsed in its moment of glory by something even greater. In the rush for green energy alternatives about a decade ago, the Crescent Dunes solar installation in Nevada was touted as something of a marvel. The billion-dollar installation was funded by major investors and backed by the U.S. government. It was going to be the biggest plant of its kind in the world, and it was going to produce enough electricity from the sun to power a whole city using its 10,000 mirrors. It looked like the model solution for renewable power, and the money just poured in. The investors poured in. But by the time the massive plant came online, new, more efficient solar panel technology had already eclipsed it, and it was entirely obsolete and redundant by the time it was built, and it's now no longer in use. In its moment of glory, it was immediately outshone. Back in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord made a promise to Eve that a descendant of hers would crush the head of the serpent. And ever since that point, we scour the pages of the Scripture looking for this serpent crusher, this deliverer, this rescuer, this Savior. And here in Genesis chapter 14, we do reach a moment of glory for Abram, don't we? With only 318 troops, a small force, he defeated the enemy forces. He pursued them. He brought back all the plunder. And to add to his virtue, he goes on in verse 22 to refuse that very tempting offer from the king of Sodom to share now in the material plunder. He refuses these riches for fear that he should appear to have been made rich by a godless king, having actually made that mistake once before in Egypt. This is a great and a shining day for Abram. But in case we get ahead of ourselves and begin to imagine that Abram is the Lord's ultimate king or deliverer or savior, in case we begin to imagine that the ultimate saving purposes of God are fulfilled in him, the Lord does something absolutely stunning here at the end of Genesis 14, something thoroughly remarkable. He inserts into this situation, almost out of nowhere, it seems, he inserts a figure, a character, a person who points beyond Abram to a greater king yet to come. Just notice it with me, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to think that Melchizedek is just about the most fascinating character in all the Bible, the most intriguing figure. He appears here almost out of nowhere, but he's a figure of great dignity, isn't he? And a very unique identity. And all the details seem significant. 
Abram is here meeting with the king of Sodom after he's helped bail him out. They're meeting at a place called the King's Valley, which I guess seems appropriate. And as they meet, another king joins them. This king is called Melchizedek. We've never met him before. His name literally means king of righteousness. He is king of a place named Salem, which literally means peace, but sounds an awful lot like Jerusalem. So a mysterious king named king of righteousness and king of peace appears really from nowhere. But added to that, we're told that he is priest of God most high. Now, in ancient Israel, you were either a priest or you were a king, but you were not both at the same time. In fact, kings were not allowed to get involved in priestly duties. That was kind of off limits. But this king, he is both priest and king at once. He pronounces a blessing on Abram, which the New Testament book of Hebrews would tell us means that he is the superior one in the exchange. The lesser person is blessed by the greater person. And Abram, for his part, he responds with a tithe, which in the later Old Testament you would only give to a priest of God at the temple. Now, all of that, all those details are seriously intriguing details. This is very fascinating stuff. But what's the point of all of it? I mean, why is Melchizedek here? Well, I think the point is simply this. Just at the moment when we might imagine that Abram is the supreme ruler and the deliverer sent by God, the one who will be all that God has promised his Savior to be, just at this moment of glory for Abram, we are given a model, a placeholder, a type of the true Savior who is to come the one who is both priest and king, the supreme one who can pronounce God's blessing, the one to whom all honor is due. At Abram's moment of glory here in Genesis 14, Melchizedek points us beyond Abram to the one who will outshine him in every way. We don't meet Melchizedek again. He's mentioned, I think, once more in the Old Testament, but he was needed here in Genesis 14. He had a key part to play. So interesting, you know, to follow all the ups and downs of the record of Abram. In chapter 12, when he was in Egypt pretending that his wife was merely his sister in order to save his own skin, I guess the reminder and the reassurance that was needed was simply this. The plans of God, they don't rest on this flawed and failing and sinful guy. We'd never imagine that Abram is the savior of the world in that dark time. But zoom forward a couple of chapters now in chapter 14, and Abram looks like such a hero, doesn't he? He's doing so well. And the new temptation is to think that he is going to be the be-all and the end-all of God's saving purposes. But just at this very moment, at this crucial moment, here comes a reminder, as it were, from heaven, a pointer, a model to say, no, there's a greater one than Abram. There is one of true worth. There is one who will save not just Lot from his folly, but humanity from its sin. And it's so good, isn't it, how this blessing on Abram in verse 20, how within that blessing Melchizedek reminds him that it is God most high who has delivered these enemies into his hand. That was actually just the thing that Abram needed to hear, didn't he, in his moment of great triumph. That was just the contextualization that Abram needed by way of reminder. Now, we come at all this today, don't we, from the other side of the cross, 
The Savior has come. We know His name. We've seen His salvation. But, you know, the essential issues, some of the heart issues for us, are just the same now as they were then. We see a great Christian leader, a great servant of the Lord, and we can sometimes attach to them almost a messianic identity, the great evangelist, the the great church planter, the great missionary, the great leader who has helped us so much personally, whoever that person may be. And we can put such people on a kind of pedestal. But how we need the simple reminder, there is but one king, there is but one priest, there is but one savior, the the king of righteousness, the, the king of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He alone can save. And so whether other leaders ultimately disappoint us or whether they remain heroes and role models to us throughout their lives, our eyes then remain fixed firmly on the one true Savior, the the one true King. And that's the place of safety for us, isn't it? It's interesting to consider just how Abram might have been feeling here in verse 16. I guess he was probably on a bit of a high. The adrenaline had been pumping. Victory was his honor and appreciation were flowing toward him, I guess. And isn't it gracious of God at that moment to give him this powerful picture of the greater king, the true Savior who is yet to come. If you and I have a moment or two of glory, perhaps we've served well in something, perhaps there's some appreciation for something we've done in the service of the Lord. If you have a moment like that, maybe, maybe you're in that place just now, I have no idea. But if we do, don't we need a reminder that we're not the Savior? <laughs> you and I, we're not the Messiah That job has been taken. That role has been fulfilled. As I was working on this message, I had a bit of music playing in the background, as I sometimes do. I had a recent recording, actually, of Handel's Messiah playing. I never get tired of that. This was a rather nice recording done in the Sydney Opera House just before the pandemic shut things down. Anyway, as I was considering this point, the final chorus came on. It's a piece that always actually just sends shivers down my spine with its sheer majesty. It's drawn from Revelation chapter 5, perhaps you're familiar with it, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive riches and power and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever and ever and ever in this moment of triumph for a servant of God, Melchizedek comes along as a pointer to the true king, the true priest, the true savior. And I think the point is actually so simple. He alone is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He's the star of the show star is not Abram, great as he may be here. The star is not our particular hero of the faith in our day, our our mentor or whoever that person may be. The star is certainly not any of us. The great hero of the story, the King and the Savior is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy and to whom alone is the glory. 
Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, a message called Battle and Blessing, really taking a look at how the salvation plan of God will move forward in the world. If you missed any part of today's broadcast or the previous broadcast, the first half of this message, come to the website. You can listen online. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. And whether you do listen to the broadcast online or on the radio, it's all made possible because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Everything a Child Should Know About God. It's a book that Jonathan's used with his own kids, and it's our way of saying thanks for your support this month. Just ask about everything a child should know about God when you call us at 1-833-998-7884 or visit our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Again, the phone number is 833-99-TRUTH and the website is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.